Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome to another episode of Accelerating Government. For over 40 years, the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council has served a unique position in the federal marketplace as a nonprofit whose purpose is to bring together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. On the first half of today's show, we'll be talking about the dramatically increasing use of other transaction authority, or OTAs. And I'm delighted to be joined by Stan Soloway, CEO of Celeros Strategies. He's the former CEO of the Professional Services Council, former DOD acquisition leader, a fellow at both the National Academy of Public Administration and the National Contract Management Association, and a former boss and longtime friend and mentor of mine. Welcome to the show, Stan. David, it's great to be here. Just be kind, please. Absolutely. Nothing but kind on accelerating government. We're also joined by Jason Knudsen, CEO of Visva Lab. Jason's a former naval officer who also served as program manager for IT and related capabilities at the Defense Innovation Unit. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. Dan and Jason, to start the show, I'd like to offer my congratulations to both of you for being recognized as Fed 100 winners for the groundbreaking work that you've been doing on the use of OTAs, which culminated in a very well-received report. Other transaction authorities, after 60 years hitting their stride or hitting the wall, was published by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and it's available for our listeners on both the Federal News Network website and the IBM Center for the Business of Government website. Let's get started. We'll, we'll start with you, Stan. Perhaps a good place to start is some initial stage setting. Why don't you share with the audience a brief overview of OTAs and what's happened in recent years that resulted in such an increase in their use? Sure. So in a very, very quick, brief fashion, OTAs actually were created back in the 1950s with the nascent space program and a recognition on the part of the government and Congress that they were going to need to access a full array of commercial capabilities to really combat Sputnik and launch the U.S., pardon the pun, into a leadership position in space. Over the next couple of several decades, they were used sparingly, but used somewhat by NASA. Eventually, the authority was extended to the Defense Department. I think it was, Jason, correct me, I think it was like 1989, 1990, but extended to the Defense Department. But they were primarily seen as a tool to drive R&D. OTAs were designed to enable the government and are designed to enable the government to do R&D with commercial players who are not going to otherwise engage with the government under the traditional federal acquisition regulation. Their use continued relatively modestly in the several hundred million dollars range for several more decades. And then finally in uh, 2016, Congress recognized what a lot of people, including us, have been advocating that you really needed to look at OTAs as a, as, a, as a solution, not as a piece. And so Congress authorized the use of other transactions authorities all the way through for Defense Department, all the way through the production of whatever it is you're researching. So you could use it all the way through previously through demonstration and final development. But when you got to production, you had to transition back to a traditional FAR contract. Congress said, no, we recognize that that's not practical and that's actually cutting our nose off despite our face. We're going to give you authority to use them all the way through production. And that really lit the fire. And since that time, over the last uh, six years, we've seen use of OTAs go from somewhere around $500 million to by some estimates, 12 to $15 billion uh, this year. So it's been a, a dramatic increase. And of course, with that has come a lot of questions about what are they? How do they work? Are they safe or are they too high risk? 
And that was a lot of the questions. It is a fascinating report. I encourage the audience to go check it out if you haven't had a chance to read it. It is by no means dry. It is definitely chock full of interesting stories. And one of the interesting stories, Jason, is about the use of OTAs for COVID vaccines. So maybe you can like pile on anything you want to add to Stan's initial initial salvo about the history of OTAs and then also share with us uh, the story about COVID vaccines. Well, it's interesting when you look through the history of OTAs that it, it pretty much mirrors the history of existential crisis in the United States. And OTAs uh, shine in prominence when there, there is an external threat to the way of, of living in the United States. And the existing acquisition system just is unsuited to be able to go after it. Whether it's the, you know, the 1950s with, with the space race and, you know, the uh, emergence of nuclear weapons and or it was the MRAPs and the IED problem in Afghanistan, which were also developed with OTAs. But most recently, we ended up having Operation Warp Speed, which was this novel response to the, the COVID pandemic where multiple, multiple agencies came together like CDC, FDA, NIH, BARDA, and the Center of Acquisitions was actually done through the Department of Defense through the use of OTAs. The people they pulled in to actually do those acquisitions were primarily from ACC New Jersey that had been doing OTAs and OTA consortiums for several years. And for a long time, up until DIUX or DIU now received their own acquisition authority, were doing all of the OTAs for, for that, for DIU. The Operation Warspeed did about $12.4 billion worth of investment into research and development. And during its about one year of being stood up, was able to move uh, the Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines into use across the United States. And so just about everybody in the United States has been touched by an OTA, whether they, whether they believe it or not. And OTAs were critical to be able to um, to have the response we did for the COVID vaccine. David, if I can just jump in, tap in two quick points, I think on the mRNA piece, the Army had actually been researching mRNAs, I think largely through OTAs for decades, uh, going back to the anthrax scare. Uh, so they were looking at this sort of path towards, towards a vaccine for other uh, chemical uh, and biological threats. And this was a perfect dovetail. So there was a history within the Army of this kind of research. But the other point I think that, that if you think what, what Jason said about surges in use of OTAs being tied to existential threats, the core question in our mind and, and the core question in the report was, if they're so good in a th threat environment, if they work so well when we really need them desperately, why are we not using them more? What is it that holds us back? Are there operational issues that mean we can only use them sparingly? And, and you know, David, you and I have talked about this for years. We think about a lot of things in acquisition reform and, and initiatives like that. They seem to work well yeah, in an emergency. I think why a topic will come up repeatedly in this conversation about, you know, when, when there's a burning platform, we, we go and jump in and do bold things, and then we settle back into the status quo of being risk averse and so on and so forth. One, one of the things you note in the report is that OPA, exactly. OTAs have yet to meet the intended goal of incentivizing innovation. Uh, innovation is certainly a hot topic in government. Jason, let's start with you. What do you think can be done to address some of, uh, you know, address increasing access to innovation in government? I think the the biggest piece is the adoption of OTAs and these sort of commercial business practices across the DoD. 
um, there is a reluctance at many of these contracting organizations to use OTs, and there is a there is an overwhelming cultural preference for the FAR. A lot of that is actually been taught in the community. Uh, this fear of going to contracting jail or fear of protest, which actually OTAs creatively solved. Um, OTAs also have the ability to provide more flexibility when negotiating intellectual property. Uh, it has the ability to do short contracts that are understandable by human beings and you know, deal with the flexibility and cost accounting and really access an entire new group of, of people and companies that would not normally do business with DOD under a, a normal FAR, FAR contract. So I think the first piece is, is education. Really FAR, FAR is a, from our report, uh, meets all the tenets of, of public procurement. So there's no reason why you couldn't be having really a trade-off, should I do an OTA here and, or should I do a FAR here? I think w one of the biggest barriers to, to adoption and spreading of the, the OTs and all the goodness that comes with them is a FAR first attitude. And it, we just need to continue communicating out that, you know, OTs do meet those tenets of public procurement and they should be a, they should be an option across the entire DOD. And as that grows, the innovation will come with it. We stand, we have about a minute before we go to a break, but why don't you pile on? I know innovation has been a subject that you have written and spoken about extensively on. What are some of your thoughts about it? I just I think that what Jason said, if you look across the, the, the landscape, that's exactly what's happening. The comment in the report specifically about not achieving the goal of innovation really was driven by our recognition. And there's no great data on this, so this is largely anecdotal, but it's talking to the dozens of people we did interviewing experts across the spectrum. There are very few cases where we have successfully transitioned from prototype to production. Because at that production line, the, the line was supposed to be erased by the legislation. We are seeing the reinsertion of FAR-based clauses that are just not tenable in a commercial environment. So many of them had to do with intellectual property, which, by the way, is a subject that the commercial world needs to understand a little better about government's interests and needs. We'll take a we short break now when we return. And a failure we'll to really transition success. Other transaction authorities, acquisition reform with Stan Soloway, CEO of Soloway Strategies, and Jason Knudsen. CEO of Visva Lab, I'm Dave Wenergren. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Wenergren. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wenergren, and today we're discussing OTAs and federal acquisition with Stan Soloway, CEO of Celero Strategies and a leading expert on federal acquisition, and Jason Knudsen, CEO of Visva Lab and a former DOD innovation and change leader. When we left off, we were talking about the challenges of cultural change and helping acquisition professionals step out of their comfort zone. Let's Go back to you, Stan, because I know it's a, been an important topic for you for a number of years. How can we address this concern about encouraging acquisition professionals to step out of their comfort zone, to, to move away from like risk avoidance to risk management and to, and to help address some of these crucial cultural change issues? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge question. And we have, you know, in the report, we make a number of recommendations that I don't think that even taken together, they necessarily solve the whole problem because this is, this is really a, an enormous cultural shift for, for an entire 
workforce, but also ancillary workforces or adjacent workforces, whether it's the legal community, the finance community, the accounting community, the program management community. This is not just about contracting. This is really about the, the larger mission set. And so everybody needs to be part of it. So a couple of things just at a high level. Number one, we need to recognize over, that over the last, I'll say, 20 plus years, acquisition has become part of the political fight. We have seen it increasingly used as whether it was in the Iraq conflict or with Katrina and other places. Not that there were not problems with acquisition, but acquisition itself and the acquisition frontline folks actually being used as proxies in a broader political fight. That, that has added only added to a traditionally risk-averse system and culture. Interestingly, in this case, we have Congress is actually pushing forward. Congress continually reiterates its support for innovation and its recognition of the need for change. So I think we need to start by recognizing that there's broad leadership support to do things differently and to rethink entirely how we develop the acquisition workforce and all of the adjacent skill sets that they, that they interface with, the, inter, the interdependencies, if you will. The second piece is looking very practically at how we train and develop people. Uh, the actual courseware and the order of courseware and, 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 and what we try to acclimate them to. You know, Jason made the comment a minute ago, and I'll use this as, a small, as one example, um, you know, accounting flexibility. Use that term in the audit community and government, and it scares the heck out of them, which means it scares the heck out of the contracting folks. We're not talking here about accounting cheating. What we're actually talking about is using generally accepted accounting principles that govern the entirety of the rest of our economy. Why are we not actually training people in that and really getting them smart on that. Intellectual property is another good example. Companies need to understand the government's needs. It's not a zero sum game, but we have to begin to orient people's thinking differently in terms of what is the government's interest and need and what is the reality of the marketplace in which they're dealing. And I think maybe the sort of thematically, I think our mutual friend Dave Drabkin and the Section 809 panel, which looked at acquisition a couple of years ago in a, in a voluminous report, he's continually used the term we need to be on a wartime footing with acquisition. And I think a wartime footing means bold, aggressive, creative, and responsible. And so the, the responsibility doesn't go away. And as Jason said, in OTAs, what we found reviewing actual agreements, they meet all the tenets of public procurement. There may be need some modifications for other areas, but they're not massive. They are consistent with public procurement. But the other, I guess, if we're into slogans or lines you'd want to use is you have to do what the military tries to do, is you have to train as you fight and fight as you train. We are training people for a fight, but then putting them into an environment where the fight is actually very different than what they've been trained for. Um, the need to access that full array of commercial capabilities, recognize that the government is not the only buyer or only uh, resource, the only buyer or customer for most technology today. I would like to bring up that there's been some efforts out there in the past to actually go out and address this uh, this knowledge gap and this cultural gap. The one that pops in my mind is the Acquisition Innovation Roadshow that was done out of TARDEC prior to the establishment of Army Futures Command, which was disestablished when Army Futures Command stood up. But it was really a self-nominated group of contracting and acquisition lawyers that traveled the country and uh, taught people how to do OTAs and taught and was focused on like the culture of doing this and how you think about doing this. I think the problem that we run into is because the foundation of all the training we do is in government procurement, government contracts, and the federal acquisition requirements. Um, and you don't even get into OTAs and this category they're calling alternative uh, acquisitions or alternative contracting until you're a senior acquisition professional. 
that you run into sort of this A to B thinking and you're trained when presented with A situation, you take B action and that B action is this, this section of the FAR or this line of local checklist. And that works up into the point where you end up needing a, a result that is C, right? You need to be able to engage with a, a customer as a commercial contract. Um, you need to know what, what commercial uh, companies are going to do. You need to know how to startup works. You need to know what your you know, contracting and acquisition decisions are going to do to the bottom line of a company that only has 12 months of runway. Um, you know, why are they not meeting my, my needs? Well, I didn't know enough to anticipate what they wanted to do. And so initially, we almost want a preference for people doing OTA work that do not have a strong basis in the FAR as the primary source, that they have a strong basis in commercial contracts and understanding commercial companies because their AB reasoning is to find solutions that are, again, uh, compatible with the, the tenets of public procurement, but are not the federal acquisition requirements first. I'd say the last thing is, and, and this is something that um, is more of the, of the passion and the reason why I really jumped on this project when Stan called me and asked me if I wanted to work on this. And it's, I feel that we've lost the ownership of the system. We've lost the, the ability to say, you know, I own this system. I can manage the system. I can, I can change the system to be what we need. And we're currently in a situation where we can go and we can deliver a perfect acquisition program based upon perfect requirements that's funded and supported by Congress all the way through. And when we deliver it, it doesn't meet operational needs and it doesn't meet the needs of the warfighter. And that's, that's terrifying to me. It tells me that we are slaves to the system and the system's not, not, it's not being shaped by the people who are doing the organization. And so, so two I, compelling points there that you make. Yeah. One is about, you know, we become slaves of the system and we train on a small portion of the system. I, I You know, it just, it just strikes me. I have to say that, you know, it was last millennium when the Navy did the Navy Marine Corps intranet as a FAR Part 12 managed services contract. I mean, this is not like new stuff. There are these flexibilities that exist. And it, and it seems to me that the use of OTAs is not only a recognition of a great tool in the toolbox, but also a sort of a statement of objection no. to how hard it is to if yeah. we do everything as like low price, technically acceptable kinds of competition. So, so Stan, how can we bring more speed and success to to the broader set of acquisitions, not just the use of OTAs, but even using the parts of the FAR that exist? Yeah, and I think your comment about NMCI, which you know was painful in many ways, um, but that's a really critical point. If FAR Part Twelve today were the same as FAR Part 12 as it was conceived and written and originally implemented just prior to NMCI. OTAs would be much less critical because FAR Part 12 really is a model that most OTAs tend to follow naturally. Now, there are some differences and issues. So I think the point you're making is really important that we have a long history of success. We understand the issues. We have components of the Department of Defense in particular that have done things differently with their workforce. DARPA, uh, which has a lot of experience with OTAs by given its, its role, you have, to, you have to qualify into the agreements workforce. You have to be a contracting officer, but then you have to demonstrate aptitude for commercial contracting. Navy under Hondo Gertz was actually looking at an initiative where you could not be a, a contracting officer, to Jason's point, 
and do agreements also because he was concerned and still is concerned. I still talk to him about it that you get, as Jason said, so inculcated with a certain th thinking. You can be very smart, very creative, very bold, but you're still constrained by what you know. And so I think this, that it, we, we really, and again, I don't have a great concrete answer, steps A, B, C, D, and E, but it really requires the leadership to not only rise to the moment, but recognize, as Jason said, we're losing control of the system. Own the system and make the system that you need to deliver results you want. Um, I don't want to go to another acquisition conference and contracting conference where people complain about the system and are doing nothing to change it. We have the tools. Congress supports us. Let's go out and do the things we need to do to support our nation. I love it. I love, well, I want to have a banner from Stan, bold, creative, aggressive, and responsible. What a way to go. Uh, Stan Soloway is the CEO of Solarose Strategies. Jason Knudsen is the CEO of Visva Lab. Their report is other transaction authorities after 60 years hitting their stride or hitting the wall. It's available for download on both Federal News Network and IBM Center for the Business of Government website. Stan and Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Jim Cook to talk about the President's Management Learning Agenda and Innovation in the Marketplace. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACTIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACTIAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Wintergren. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACTIAC. I'm Dave Wintergren. On the second half of today's show, I'm joined by Jim Cook, Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships at MITRE and the leader of the ACTIAC Institute for Innovation. Welcome back to the show, Jim. Thanks, Dave, and thanks for inviting me back. It's great to have you back. And since the last time you were our guest, the administration has released a new president's management agenda. And last month on the show, we had Federal Deputy CIO Maria Rode to discuss the PMA a little bit. Now, since her visit, the administration has now released a PMA learning agenda, creating a roadmap to spur research evidence and awareness to help ensure successful PMA implementation. Our listeners can view the PMA learning agenda on the Federal News Network website. And, uh, you know, you've devoted a lot of your time, Jim, to helping the government successfully embrace big changes. So are there some things in the new president's management agenda that you're excited about? Yes, actually, there's a lot to be excited about. Uh, first of all, I'd say the structure. You know, approaching this is not a single document, but an initiative. The way that's been described, I think, is really, really a key shift. And, and I'm excited about that because uh, I think that it, uh, you know, it, 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 it really creates a good vision, a clear vision for where the government wants to go. But then this inclusion of the learning agenda is an important piece that I think has been has been missing. It's really going to help us build a bridge between the vision and what needs to be done to implement it. So I like the structure. I think the equity focus is really key. There's a lot of focus and attention on that. And I think it's important because there is a difference between equity and equality. And we don't achieve these things without being really intentional. So building this into this focus, into the agenda, into the vision is really key. I think I, I couldn't be happier about the focus on evidence and data to drive policy management and decisions and performance. Was really happy to see the concept of life events pop back up in terms of customer experience. You may remember that ACT-IAC and the Institute for Innovation did some work a number of years ago on uh, looking at life events models and how they, they might be implemented in benefits administration. So a lot to be excited about in terms of the focus and the way this is being rolled out. 
And I know that as a champion for continuous learning throughout your career, I bet you're as delighted as I am to have seen the first ever formal PMA learning agenda released. Why is the learning agenda such an important component or you know, tangential piece to the PMA itself? I think the learning agenda is an important bridge between what the vision describes in terms of what we want to achieve, what the government wants to achieve, and, um, and the various possibilities to do it. And anything new, I think, really is, um, is best informed by data and evidence. And when you look at the learning agenda, what they're really trying to understand is what are the possibilities before making decisions about particular solution paths or strategies, what are the range of possibilities that exist? And I think that's, a, that's important to um, really optimize achieving the objectives and avoiding the unintended consequences. One of the points in the learning agenda is this focus on critical evidence gaps, something you mentioned about an important part of the PMA. What are a few of the gaps that you think deserve our attention in the year ahead? Well, let's see. There's there's probably a number of them. So um, let me just take one uh, that I think is 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 really um, really important, and that is uh, better understanding this correlation between performance. The, the customer experience and how that really drives trust in government. I think there's clearly been studies and surveys and such that have been done to demonstrate there is a correlation. But when I look at the learning agenda and some of the questions that are being asked and some of the things that, uh, that we've suggested back to OMB on this front, I think there's more insight that can be gained on what the real drivers or triggers are in performance uh, and in customer experience that really impacts trust because trust is affected by a number of different things. And, um, and so I think that's a critical gap that needs to be better understood because the opportunity there is to really be more predictive and targeted and strategic in making investments and knowing that if I make an investment or I make a change that it really is truly going to drive trust as opposed to making assumptions about the degree to which that's going to help me with overall trust in government. So that's one. I think there's a lot of evidence gaps uh, to be uh, focused on related to equity. Uh, and that's not just true of the federal government. We're finding that true in the private sector as well as in state, a state and local level as well. So I think those are two really important areas in the agenda uh, to uh, to be tackled, and it's being reflected in the learning agenda as well. I, I'm delighted that you brought up trust. We, we could probably describe that as the elephant in the room. You've been a leading mind on the issue of trust, and it was a major theme of your work leading Act IX Agenda 2021 Presidential Election Project. What, let's just go back there for just another minute and say, what are some of the things that we must do both to build trust in government and to encourage trust between organizations within government. So, yeah, that's a, a good a good question, Dave. I think there's, um, and my answer here may sound a little oversimplified, but um, an important element to trust is transparency, and um, and so transparency initiatives are really important between the government and the public, the government and the private sector. Um, and, uh, and, and between government agencies themselves, um, tr transparency and sharing. And, and, and so that, I think, is, uh, is, is an important trigger 
to drive trust. Uh, the other is um, really being accessible. Uh, you know, the, when you think about government services and um, the difficulty sometimes that uh, the public experiences in navigating uh, a, a federal agency or federal program, I think that um, I think that really can undermine trust and confidence in government's ability to adequately serve the public. Uh, effective use of technology is another one, right? You know, it 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 does create a perception of competency if if you're not able to access a service or get access to people at a federal agency to get your questions answered because of technology. That you know that doesn't uh, that doesn't speak well to the overall competency of the organization and that impacts trust. So, so there are things like that that I think are important to, uh, to really focus on. A lot of those you might consider kind of the way we implement uh, and the way we operate as, um, you know, as, as, or that's as important as what the government does to, uh, to build trust. Um, so those are, those are a couple of examples of things that I think are important to reinforcing and in improving trust. Yeah, it's a topic that's just so important to all of us. And I know the book is a few years old now, but the Stephen Covey Jr. book, The Speed of Trust, I still encourage our audience to read that. It's a fascinating book about the cost that we pay both in terms of money and time by operating in low trust environments. And, and none of us are immune from it. Low trust environments exist across government and in large companies too. Right. The other topic that you mentioned in the gap conversation was customer experience. And that probably deserves a couple minutes of our time too. And so I'm wondering if maybe you wanna talk a little bit more about that, you know, delivering government programs and services effectively is so important. And what, and what can we do to improve customer engagement and experience? So, um, well, I, I'll go back to the accessibility um, topic, right? Um, be, having services readily available, and that does, doesn't mean making, putting more things out in self-service. So I'll, I'll give you an example, um, and, and I wanna be careful not to name names because I'm not impugning the agency, but clearly during COVID, there was a lot that was being done to, uh, by the government to support the public in different ways. But one of the common stories was how difficult it was to get information from some of those agencies on how to access those services. And it was even difficult to get access to people who could answer your questions uh, and not get captured or caught in self-service kind of, um, you know, uh, 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 continual loops. And so that created a lot of frustration and, and it really did negatively affect the customer experience. You wanna have information to know what you need to do to get access to the service. You wanna have the ability to access the service and you need access to people if for, for some reason you have questions or unique circumstance that you need to get uh, answers to questions too. And so I think it's that, 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 that balance between being, um, creating the ability for people to do things for themselves, but still giving them access to the necessary information, people and tools to help them with their unique circumstance, because not every instance is the same. Everybody has some, um, some, some unique component to their circumstance that they wanna ask about or that they need to have considered. We're gonna take a short break now. And when we return, we'll have more with Jim Cook 
Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships at the Mitre Corporation. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACDIAC on the Federal News Network. Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACDIAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Wintergren. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACDIAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, and we're talking with Jim Cook, Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships at MITRE and the leader of the ACDIAC Institute for Innovation. When we were talking in the first half of the show, we were delving into the learning agenda that's associated with the president's management agenda. And and one of the topics that gets brought up in it is this uh, need for research to help close the gaps that exist. But there's been so many trends in research in the federal market over the last couple of decades and something I know you've closely followed from from government, you know, driven research agendas to the private sector bearing the burden of research. And, and I'm just wondering, like, where you see the research agenda going from here and what should be the role of government? So, yeah, and I think it probably is a little bit of a, a, a balance between the kind of the I use the term extremes, but I don't mean it in a negative way. But the but the the extremes that you just uh, highlighted, Dave, and I and I really like this focus in in the the research agenda and the overall PMA initiative because, sure, the government can can and does do research and innovation. There are whole agencies that are, that are dedicated to this, but the scale and the capacity of private sector, academia, and the nonprofit research community to do research is um, is really something that the government is, I think, uh, committed now to taking greater advantage of. And this is where I think the research agenda, uh, excuse me, the learning agenda is really critical. Because if you think about it, in part, what this creates is now a two-way exchange of information where the government is informing the private sector and the research community on what they want to ultimately accomplish. And they're soliciting ideas and possibilities and feedback on how to do that. And that's going to inform government plans, which will then inform and speak more to the private sector and to academia and further allow them to develop those concepts out, do the research, do the, do, do the early stage um, uh, um, solution development to meet those needs. That's very different than the traditional approach of providing a specification and getting a solution back. And so this is more of a collaborative process and I think um, is really important because there is so much research capacity out there in the nation today. Um, and what we really want to try to do is focus that research power on the real needs that the government has now and into the future, and um, and so I, I really like this focus. I think there's I think there's some some real opportunity here to um, to target and focus the research capacity on the things that really matter to the government and what we're trying to accomplish as a federal government and a nation. The learning agenda calls out the need to work across boundaries too, or as they say yes. in the report, to bridge silos. And uh, or as I've often referred to them, cylinders of excellence that, that can sometimes get in the way. Uh, you know, it's an important change management topic. And I'm wondering if you have some advice you'd like to offer on breaking down the barriers between these silos that exist so frequently, both within agencies and across agencies on these issues that span the entire government. 
Right. So, so I'll, um, and this may, uh, I want to actually, my answer here is in part going to follow up on the last question and then get to start to get to your question about the silos. So um, you asked in on the last question, what can the government do? And so I, I, I talked a little bit to that, but I'd like to kind of give you an example because it goes back to your previous segment to some degree too with Stan and Jason on acquisition. And that is, you know, if the, if, through this learning agenda, the government is being clear about what they want to know. What's the, what are the, what's the knowledge and the insight and the possibilities that they want to understand? But then I think the government plays a critical role in facilitating the on-ramp so that when innovations do come forward, that the on-ramp to adoption is really, really, uh, really, really easy and, um, and, and exists because so many innovations sometimes run into the realities of the acquisition process. And, and as your previous guest said, they fail as a result. And we're dealing with some real life examples of that right now, where the where private sector company is spending and willing to spend more money on an innovation, doing the research and doing the early development of the idea, but they're running into some resistance from the government in terms of committing to or appearing to commit too much to adopt what ultimately comes out of that uh, that innovative project. And so we're working to try to figure out how to meet them halfway and build that bridge. Um, and I think in terms of the, the silos, there's different silos that I think we're trying to address through the learning agenda. Um, the silos between agencies are clearly uh, one example. I think what the learning agenda can help do is identify where there are common issue where there where the where the there are common issues and challenges across agencies and then creates a mechanism for the agencies to work collaboratively with the research community to solve those to answer those questions and to solve those problems um, so i think that's one i think that's one opportunity and one intent behind the learning agenda but i also think to some extent there are silos silos that are sector specific the academic community the private sector the nonprofit research community. And what this learning agenda is really doing is saying, look, we need the input from all of you. In fact, the innovations are, the innovation opportunity is more powerful when you're working together, bringing this perspective of the research community and the way they look at problems a little differently because they're not as embedded in the implementation. They're more looking at the theory and the concepts behind them. And then the private sector, which is really focused on how do I how do I create a solution around this that I can commoditize and make it easily accessible. So those perspectives are really important to bring together to drive innovation. And I think the learning agenda helps us and encourages us to work across those sector boundaries to do just that. Jim, you have a fascinating position at a very interesting company where you, where you have a great vantage point on the important topics facing the federal market. So what, what are some of the other projects that you're working on spending your time on? Now? Well, uh, uh, aside from, as you know, the, the the policy center, the Center for Data-Driven Policy that we launched a year and a half ago, where we're really trying to uh, bring um, the insight and data and evidence from research activities into the policy decision process. Uh, the other thing I'm working on is very much aligned with what we've been talking about here today, Dave, and that is 
working on the cross-sector partnerships, building the research collaborations that are necessary to really um, to really tackle some of the challenges that are laid out in the the president's management agenda. And just as an example of that, um, we do a lot of work with accelerators. You know, we've uh, we we've engaged one of them in several ACT-IAC activities, Mass Challenge, for instance. So what we're starting to do with our uh, accelerator partners is bring the government challenges from or the government um, needs from the president's management agenda vision, helping them shape challenges around those and then using those to drive their challenge based uh, activities. And so that is a connection that's that's a connection that hasn't necessarily always been made in the past. Certainly, accelerators like AFWorks are doing this, but some of the accelerators that are really focused on the private sector haven't been as closely aligned directly with government challenges. I think about it this way: they've the the degree to which a new company or a new solution could meet a government need was considered the dual use opportunity. We're trying to actually now come at it from the different direction, which is let's focus on solving the government problem and then identifying the private sector dual use opportunity for that idea or solution. Where the and 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 so that is really taking a lot of what we already do with these organizations and now leading with the government challenge, not the, you know, not not the other way around. So that's a that's an exciting opportunity and one that we're seeing get a lot of traction and and I think uh, can be very beneficial to, um, you know, to what the what the administration is trying to do with this agenda. Very good. And we'll put a link to the Center for Data Driven Policy on the on the website to help folks learn more about that. Jim Cook is the vice president for strategic engagement and partnerships at MITRE. Jim, thank you for your leadership in the community and thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about the Institute for Innovation's work, you can check out our website, www.actiac.org. I should note that our annual Innovation Awards program is open until March 15th. So if you have an innovative solution in government that you want to contribute, please fire away and, and, and let us know about that. And our Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference is May 22nd to May 24th in Cambridge, Maryland. And thank you all of you for listening today. We've covered a lot of ground on both how acquisition reform and the learning agenda can help accelerate mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.